0: Hi, this is Patrick Barrett, co-host of Unknown Orbits Podcast. I'm here to tell you about my latest novel, The Nowhere Navy, a military science fiction novel set in the distant future. It's basically McHale's Navy in space. It's on Amazon.com. I hope you'll enjoy it.
1: Stop the presses. Pull out the
0: front page.
1: Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys
0: from Milwaukee? Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee.
1: Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to
0: Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 47 of Unknown Orbits, Exploration Team by Murray Leinster. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. So tonight's story is about an exploration team. It's about a planet whose sole human occupant is a settler who's illegally squatting on the planet. In this future, planets are controlled by the government and you have to have a license in order to settle on a planet. And this particular character, our protagonist, does not have a license. He's a squatter. So he's out there living his He-Man life in the wilderness of this planet, surrounded by all kinds of dangerous animals. An individualist. He's a classic, rugged individualist. And he's protected by mutated Kodiak bears that he brought with him from Earth and an eagle. And they are able to fight off the dangerous local animals, including one called spexes, which are sort of a mutated lizard, lion, panther sort of a thing that's especially dangerous, but the bears do a good job of fighting them off. So he's living his frontiersman life out here on the planet, and suddenly a ship shows up broadcasting a landing signal. So he has to turn on the landing lights, even though he knows this is probably trouble for him. Because since he's an illegal settler, and this looks like an Earth government spaceship, he might be in a lot of trouble. The ship lands, drops off a single person, and then flies away. Turns out that person is a government surveyor. And he's here to check up on a legal settlement that was started on the planet by robots and a handful of technicians. Previously, several months earlier, they landed this bunch of technicians with their robots, and they were supposed to be building a settlement for future pioneers who are legally licensed by the government.
1: So right away, we have the contrast between a highly controlled, and we assume big money settlement with machinery protecting the humans, right versus A lone man with not a lot of money who has animals protecting him. Right.
0: Living off the land.
1: Yes. And the Kodiak bears are mutated to... The Kodiak bears have been mutated so that they develop the same bond with humans that dogs have.
0: Right. They're modeled on, on the relationship between a dog and a human. So even though the settler realizes he's in a lot of trouble and the surveyor makes it clear in no uncertain terms that he is indeed in trouble and might be headed to prison, they both agree that it's important to try to find out what happened to the settlement because they're not receiving a regular communication from them, all are receiving is like a small weak signal from where that settlement would have been located. So they set out across the wilderness to find out what happened to the settlement. And along the way, it's a classic wilderness survival story where they run into all kinds of problems. They run into these spexes. They actually find a a huge herd of them migrating to their spawning grounds.
1: Structurally, it's a lot like a Martian Odyssey.
0: Yeah, it's like a Martian Odyssey. It's also kind of feels like an old Jack London tale. You know, it's men in the wilderness and they're surrounded by danger and, you know, they have to work together and the surveyor winds up developing a bond with the baby Kodiak bear. And because of that, the other bears accept him. And so it's it's very much a Hardened frontiersman and the city man, and the city man learns to toughen up and be more of a frontiersman along the way. And then they get to the settlement and they find that it's been overwhelmed by the Spexes, and most of the humans there were killed. All of the robots were wiped out, and there's only a small group of survivors living in a cave that they rescue. The story makes this overarching point that nature is. Primary. Yeah. That men themselves and men with animals are better than men in their machines. And might you say competent men? Yes. This is very much a competent man story. And it was indeed published in John W. Campbell's Astounding. So it fits right in with the competent man trope that he's so fond of. Only this is sort of a frontiersman version of the competent man. But didn't Heinlein include on his list of things that any man should be able to do? Wasn't one of them like starting a fire from scratch? Or There was like one or two frontiersman type things on his list.
1: I'm sure his list included those things that he knew how to do, yeah. nothing that he didn't know how to exactly. do.
0: Exactly. So anyway, the end of the story is that everybody's rescued. They take care of the threat of the Spexes, and the surveyor from the government... Learns to respect this settler and decides not to prosecute him after all and to let him continue his life there on the planet. I liked it. I, it was a really entertaining story with lots of action and color. You know, it was very colorful, the yeah. world that he created. It was actually a Hugo winner. Oh, I didn't know that. It won the Hugo Award for Best Novelette. In 1956.
1: Oh, you know what? I think I or, did hear per, that. Be, or
0: Best Novelette of 1956.
1: I did hear that. I forgot for a moment that it was a, I don't want to say big deal at the time, but it was, it was like a noticeable. Yeah. It was a standout story at the time. Yeah.
0: And rightly so. This is a very good story. I definitely recommend it to anyone. It's very entertaining, well-written. It was free of any real stereotypes. I think the fact that it was written in the mid-50s, I think if it would have written 10 years earlier, it might have been a little more stereotypical. Because Murray Leinster, real name William Fitzgerald Jenkins, he was one of the early writers in science fiction. He was a pulp writer going back all the way to the 19-teens. Really? Yeah, he was a high school dropout. His first story was published in 1916. I don't know whether it was a science fiction story or not. He wrote a lot of different pulp fiction.
1: I think I recall that he came to science fiction later in his career.
0: Yeah, he was primarily a pulp writer who came up during the 1920s. He wrote in Gernsback's Amazing Stories magazine. He was one of the early writers that was featured in that magazine. He served in World War I. That gives you an idea of his age. He was just a terrific writer. Decades, six decades of a career, going all the way up into, I believe, the almost to 1970. I think he died in the early 1970s.
1: That's hard to imagine, if only from how styles changed over that period.
0: Right, and he was just a very solid writer who had a lot of great ideas. Like most of the guys who had a background in pulp magazines... You know, because if you were going to be prolific and get a lot of stories published in the pulp magazines, you had to be a pretty good writer, at least a guy who could spin a good yarn. Yeah. And he definitely could do that. He was credited with a number of firsts. Now, whether these are true or not is going to potentially be the topic of a future episode, but he is credited with pioneering the idea of parallel universes, Did we not cover this earlier? Did he write Sideways in Time? We have not talked about Sideways in Time. Okay. So he also is credited with inventing the idea of universal translators, modern computers, and the internet. Now, he didn't invent the internet. He is credited with being the first one to write a story featuring something that we could see as the internet.
1: Like some form of network that involved data w- right. would qualify.
0: So as I said, in a future episode, we're going to look into that a little closer and look at the pros and cons of all of those claims. But anyway, he was very well-respected, very influential. Obviously, he's a Hugo winner. He certainly was was respected by his peers. Interestingly, he also invented front projection for movie special effects. Now, I don't know how... He did that. But rear projection, you probably remember this from old movies where somebody's driving a car and you can see the scenery moving behind them and it's obviously somebody sitting in a prop car with the film running behind them to pretend like they're actually driving a car.
1: So this was really early on that he invented it, right? Because... Yeah, I,
0: I don't have a details of exactly when he invented front projection, Front projection is the opposite of rear projection, where instead of filming somebody performing in front of a projection screen with a movie being played on it, front projection, I think it's usually done through glass or something like that, where they're behind this glass.
1: See, I'm thinking Harryhausen did that with something. He did something
0: similar. It was not quite front projection, but it was very similar, where he would place the models that he was animating in between a rear projection and then a plate of glass in front of that with some, might have some scenery painted on it, but then a big black space where they're going to insert the human footage.
1: So like a front mat painting.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's what Herrhausen did. This is a little different than that, and it was not widely used, but it still is in use today, or at least in recently, probably before CGI came along. So anyway, in addition to everything else, he invents that for movies. I don't know whether he ever made any money off of that or not, but like I said, he had a long career. He also wrote novelizations of the TV show Men Into Space, which we're going to talk about again in some future episodes. Yeah, And Erwin Allen's The Time Tunnel and Land of the Giants, which we're going to talk about here shortly in this episode. But the last thing I'm going to say about Leinster and this story is that the story was added to a fix-up novel called Colonial Survey. So he did a fix-up novel based on several of his short stories that would have been set in this world of colonization of all these different planets. And Actually, I'm putting that on my, my list. I want to get my hands on that because I enjoyed this story so much that I, I'm really looking forward to reading his fix-up novel, The Colonial Survey.
1: You know, one minor point I'd like to make is his name for the creatures, Spexis. It's hard sometimes to come up with a word for something that doesn't sound like a writer made it up. This is a very good one.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, it, it's evocative of something alien, and maybe because it has the letter X in it denotes a little bit of menace. So yeah, that was, that was a good piece of world building. Oh, shall I mention the pun? Go ahead. The eagle's
1: name is Semper Tyrannus. And the government man asks, why did you name him that? The guy explains, well, you sick a dog, and I sick Semper Tyrannus, which is what was said by one of the assassins to Caesar, which I only learned yesterday. I only know this from, it's what John Wilkes Booth said after shooting Lincoln.
0: That's what I was going to say. That's exactly what John Wilkes Booth said after killing Lincoln.
1: And thus to tyrants. Yeah, and
0: thus to all tyrants, yes. So in other words, that tyrants deserve death. So yeah, this character in this story is definitely a libertarian. No question about it. So we mentioned Irwin Allen, and... Erwin Allen was a significant figure in my childhood. One of my favorite TV shows was Lost in Space, produced by Mr. Allen, and Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Lost in
1: Space had a good two seasons.
0: No, they had a good half of a season. okay. (laughs) (laughs) Before Dr. Smith took the TV show over.
1: My favorite episodes are the black and white ones, like the first half dozen. Yeah,
0: those are terrific. And we may be discussing one or two of those in the future. Stay tuned for that. But I thought as long as we were giving a sideways mention to Irwin Allen, I think both of us grew up and are very familiar with his product. For those of you who may not know who, he's also the man who in the 1970s brought us The Poseidon Adventure, The Towering Inferno, and a number of other classic disaster movies. That's what he was probably best known for.
1: Yeah, there was a period in the 70s where it seemed every other year there was another giant disaster movie.
0: Right, and he was the producer of several of the biggest ones. For us, though, it was his TV work that we're familiar with. So I thought I would ask the question of all of the movies and TV that Irwin Allen ever did, what was the worst thing that he ever did that you can remember? And that's... Quite a list to ponder because he did some pretty cheesy stuff. Can we include individual
1: episodes, not sure, entire series? Sure. Okay, then I got it already. I was having trouble with this question when I thought it was which series was worse. But if it's individual, well, you can, episode, you, either
0: one, you can go worst series, worst episode, worst moment. If you have a list of several, we can discuss them all.
1: I hope I have the title correct: "Revolt of the Vegetables."
0: No, I think it's the Great Vegetable Rebellion. You're right, that's it. Which is infamous. It's a Lost in Space episode where an alien is growing giant vegetables and he turns Dr. Smith into a broccoli?
1: I think so.
0: I think he turns him into a broccoli. I
1: remember the representative for the vegetables was a giant carrot. Yeah,
0: so there was another actor who played a giant carrot, and I'm sure that was a high point on his resume. But it's widely thought to be not only one of the worst, if not the worst episode of Lost in Space, but maybe one of the worst episodes of television ever. Yes. But it's also beloved by many people as Magnificent Cheese.
1: Wasn't it the last episode?
0: No, it was not. That's a good choice, because, it's like I said, it's it's widely acclaimed one way or the other. I'm going to throw... The movie Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea out there as my worst pick. I
1: love that movie for how certain parts of it have not aged at all
0: well. Oh, very badly. I mean, we, we can talk about Barbara Eden, the only female member of the crew whose job is to basically go get coffee for everyone.
1: They literally use the line either to her or the female senator
0: Oh, that's right. There was a female senator, too, some aging Hollywood actress. Yes. And like
1: Dorothy L'Amour or somebody. I forget who it was. They literally used the line, well, being a woman, you wouldn't know this.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah, it had that going for it. Peter Laurie doing his Peter Laurie cheese thing, overacting all over the place. But I had very fond memories of it as a child. I thought it was a really great movie. And then I rewatched it about 5 years ago and I was stunned at how terrible it is. Just stunned. And and I'm going to talk about some of the runners up here. Oh,
1: can I mention another scene that's a favorite of mine? Sure. They're under the ice pack when there's an explosion and the ice pack shatters and as a result what happens? Large chunks of ice sink. And hit the ship.
0: Yeah. There's so many bad things in them. Bad acting, bad dialogue. The basic idea is that the Van Allen radiation belt catches fire in outer space, which things don't burn in <laughs> outer space.
1: Yes. I think they blame a rocket. Yeah, punching like holes something that they-
0: damn dirty Russians launched a rocket and punched a hole in the Van Allen radiation belt. And it's cooking the earth. So the Seaview has to race to the North Pole to fire a rocket into the Van Allen radiation belt to fix it. And is it like an unnamed communist country is trying to stop them or something like that? Or
1: Yeah, I think they left it unnamed, but yeah. we all knew.
0: Yeah, it was a Slavic-sounding unnamed country in Eastern Europe. That's terrible. But that is so bad that it beat out the adaptation of The Lost World, the classic... Conan Doyle, Finding Dinosaurs on a Plateau in South America story.
1: Who was the scientist in that? Uh, Very bony face. Oh, it
0: was, well, no, it was uh, Claude Rains played Dr. Challenger, or Professor Challenger.
1: I must have been thinking of Journey to the Center of the Earth.
0: Well, that was James Mason playing the scientist in that movie, which is a much better movie than The Lost World, even though it used lizards for dinosaurs like oh, they The Lost World do. did. They glued some horns and fins on some lizards and had them fight each other. And that was their special effects. But that's a terrible movie for so many reasons as well. There's like a buxom starlet of the 1960s. I can't remember. It wasn't Stella Stevens, but it was somebody... Stella Stevens. Oh, a current,
1: ad- not a... No, this would have been like not in the a Not 19- a fading star.
0: No, this was, yeah, like a current star of the 1960s, like a Stella Stevens adjacent starlet, and she had a pink poodle. So she's going into this jungle plateau covered with dinosaurs with a pink poodle, you know, that was called Sparky or something. I don't suppose the
1: dog gets eaten at any point?
0: It's threatened to be eaten frequently, but of course it never is. And then there's poor David Hedison from Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea plays the hero role in this. And he's, I love that guy as an actor back in the day. Who was he in Voyage? He was the second in command. Oh, okay. He was also Felix Leiter twice in James Bond movies. Oh, oh, I, I can see that. Yes. Yeah. He was an excellent Felix Leiter. Good actor, but it was in a another terrible movie from Irwin Allen. And then... I can pick out some cheesy moments like the time tunnel. The time tunnel was a pretty interesting concept. It was kind of like Stargate, where they built this big ring that you would jump into and it would take you back in time.
1: You know, I only recently saw the first episode, which explains the whole setup for the thing. I never realized that they had accidentally caused the problems in history that they are fixing.
0: Yeah, so every week the two heroes have to go back in time to fix some problem. And it's a very economical use of stock footage and the NGM wardrobe department. And props from his other series. Yeah, and props from his other series. It's not a bad show. It's actually fairly entertaining, but the cheesiness comes in when they're on obvious studio backlot with props and and costumes from, you know, Bible movies and World War II (laughs) movies and Viking movies, whatever. And then there's stock footage thrown in there on top of it, which just kind of adds a cheese factor. In
1: thinking about the time tunnel, it reminded me of a made-for-TV movie. Out of curiosity, I looked up that movie, and I hadn't realized it was also done by Irwin Allen. It's another time travel movie, which if you see it, it's clearly a pilot. So... In 1976, he tried creating another time travel series. It was called Time Travelers. Not a bad movie. There's a plague, and through historical records, they discover that there was an outbreak of it right before the Chicago fire, and a local doctor had somehow found a cure for it, but then everything burned down. And then they go back in time to try to get a sample of the cure.
0: That sounds familiar. I think I may have seen that. What happened with Irwin Allen was... The disaster movies kind of played out. So by 1976 or so, they were no longer the big hit movies that they had been a few years earlier. So he lost his meal ticket basically and wound up going back to television and making a lot of exactly that sort of thing pilots for TV shows that were movies of the week on TV, failed pilots. Some very cheap-looking disaster movies. uh, The Swarm, remember that one about the deadly bees? Oh, yes. That was a very...
1: Yes, a lot of shouting.
0: A lot of shouting, really bad special effects. That could have been a good choice for worst thing that he ever did, that movie in particular. I'm going to end my contribution here by just giving a plug for one of his better efforts, which would be Land of the Giants. Land of the Giants was, for TV, it had pretty good special effects. It was about a spaceship that went through a space warp of some kind, landed on an Earth-like planet full of giants. And the interesting twist on this that they put in there, that they didn't have to, but it made it a much better show, was it was a planet ruled by a semi-Nazi authoritarian regime. So it was not only them hiding and running away from the giant people, some of whom were friendly to them, but there was also this overarching storyline of this authoritarian, repressive government that was also after them for scientific reasons. It was an interesting little show. That was a clever little twist that they put on it that really elevated the show. I don't think it lasted more than one, maybe two seasons.
1: I have not seen too many episodes of it. I vaguely remember... Tell me if it's unfair for me to describe it as being kind of the borrowers.
0: Yeah, it's in that vein very much. So the little people living amidst the giant people, they would do things like find a, a log in the woods that was hollowed out and they would build a camp inside of it or they would go inside a house and literally go in mouse holes. and It was clever. The special effects for its day and the fact that it was on television were pretty good, probably the best special effects other than his disaster movies that he ever did.
1: Well, special effects, I mean, it's mostly a prop-driven...
0: Well, yeah, you know, it's got like the giant hand the actors projected onto it in the foreground, and maybe we'll put that on our list of TV episodes to look at. Maybe we'll pull up one of those, and we'll do a full write-up of one of those episodes.
1: Yeah, because I... As I said, I've only seen two or three episodes, and I don't even remember them well. It was yeah. way it long was, ago.
0: It was a favorite show of mine when I was a kid. Do you have any other thoughts on Erwin Allen and his many fine and not-so-fine productions?
1: I should call back and say, all kidding aside, the Time Travelers movie was really good. TV stars Sam Groom and Tom Halleck, Trish Stewart and Richard Basehart. He was the doctor back in time, and he was great in everything he, he ever did. He was a did. terrific
0: actor. There's a fantastic film noir, what's really more of a procedural, I forget the name of it, but it's one where he plays sort of a psychotic, sociopathic criminal who winds up killing somebody, and then he's on the run from the police, and it's a very tense... Oh. Uh, police chase of him trying to get away from the police and this is stunting him down. and
1: This is not the one where he has some radioactive substance that no. he's being tracked down for. Well, yes.
0: I think that is the okay. one. I'd forgotten that element of it, but it's a really good noir-ish. I wouldn't call it a film noir. It's really more of a police procedural. Yeah. But he's very good in it. He's very good in it playing sort of a nasty, psychopathic criminal who's desperate. And On the Run. And that, you know, I forget the name of it. Do you remember that TV movie that was written by Rod Serling, where the World War II bomber crashes in the desert and oh, ghosts of the crew?
1: It's a little confusing because there's a Twilight Zone episode. Yeah. Lone Survivor, I think it was called. Yeah.
0: That's a really good little movie. And he's yeah. really good. He plays, I think, the captain of the bomber. And, they're ghosts, you know, haunting this ship out in the desert, and they don't know they're ghosts.
1: Oh, and it is different from the Twilight Zone episode in that they're an investigation team that brings them along, and they're camping among the ruins oh, of the right. plane. Oh, that's right.
0: He was the sole survivor. That's it, sole survivor. Yeah, that's right. He was the sole survivor. Like, he parachuted out. Yeah. And he begins seeing the ghosts of his crew members. I think they're pissed at him. Yeah, because I don't want to ruin it for anybody. It's got a really nice ending. It's one of Rod Serling's nicest pieces of writing, I think. A very good little story with a nice little ending to it that's kind of haunting. We love Richard Basehart. He's great in everything he's ever been in.
1: Yeah. Anything else? I think that covers it.
0: Okay, that's it for episode 47. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird.
1: I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the sky. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.